there is something that unites all of us. It's not that we're all here today, because some of you are not. You're watching from home. It's not that we're all human. It's experiences that we have. And there's an experience that I want to begin today by talking to you about. And this experience has two truths about it, two characteristics. We all hate it when it's done to us. And yet we all do it. Kind of makes us a little bit of hypocrites, you know? Well, we hate it when people do it to us, but we find ourselves doing it to others. What is that thing? It's using labels. We all hate being labeled. Like, we love, we, we love when we have the freedom to be ourselves. When somebody pigeonholes us, you know, puts us in a box, labels us. I experience this on a regular basis. Inevitably, when I end up in a conversation with somebody I don't know, Maybe I get paired up in a foursome and I'm playing golf or I'm at an event and nobody knows me. They turn to me and say, Scott, so what do you do? I can't lie, you know, but I know what's going to happen next. It's going to change the round of golf. All of the F-bombs are going to go away. Um, it's going to change the conversation because there's a label and a, a stigma or maybe a stereotype around that. Maybe you know this, but even though we hate being labeled, If we're honest, we do tend to label others. We do tend to kind of look for something that that describes them or helps us understand them. When you walked in this morning, if you're here at the college, you should have got a little little tag like this. And some of you, you, you're not good directions followers. I'm just kind of making a guess. Some of you wrote your name on it, even though you were told not to write on it. You're just, you had to do it. So, you know, you kind of ruin the whole exercise Sermons of failure, I should just go home. Um, but I encourage you, if you got one of these, pull it out. And if you have a pen with you, what I would encourage you to do today is to make two marks on your name tag like this. Kind of turn it into three sections. If you're watching from home and you got a piece of paper, you could just get a piece of paper out and just write two lines and turn, turn your little name tag, your little sticker into three sections. And we're going to talk about three different things with this, this sticker this morning. And the first one is a question, and I want you to write the answer in this top section. Okay? And that question is this. What word do you use to describe yourself to others? So when you introduce yourself, and you might say, Hi, my name is, and I what? What's the thing that you use to describe yourself with? What's the word? Now, some of you are like, Scott, can I use more than one word? I'm not going to check you for a grade later. When you walk out the door, you can do whatever you want. But I encourage you for this first section, what word do you use to describe yourself to others? And some of you are like, I'm struggling. Let me give you some ideas. Maybe it's a job. Maybe when you describe yourself to somebody, you say, hi, my name is, and I'm a, and then you name your job. Maybe it's a role. A role you play in your family, a role you play in your community. Maybe it's an achievement or an accomplishment, something that you have reached in your life. Maybe it's a relationship. You know, the older I get, the more and more I get introduced as the father of my kids. I'm who I am because of my relationship to them. But if you've got that word, I'd encourage you to write it down on your sticker, on your name tag. And then hold on to that. We're going to come back to that throughout the morning. Now, what's interesting about all of these things that we use to define ourselves with is inevitably they change. 
sometimes they go away. I've always served in churches that are multi-generational. And so even from the beginning of my career, I've watched people walk through retirement when the word that they use to describe themselves is no longer active. And I've watched the struggle that's created. I've watched some people reach the top of a mountain, climb a ladder, and discover that it wasn't really what they thought it was going to be. It didn't fill them or complete them or fulfill them in the way they thought it would. I've watched parents who define themselves by their role as a parent, and then their child graduates. And then who are they? Some of you may be walking through that right now, this being graduation season. And I've also watched people struggle when a relationship ended. They had put their whole identity in someone else. And when that person was gone, either the relationship ended, that person passed away, who are they now? The thing is, no one sees insecurity coming. Insecurity doesn't send you an advance memo that's coming. You don't get a postcard in the mail, hey, I'm on my way. You don't get a text message, hey, I'll be there in 15 minutes. This series that we're in right now called Didn't See It Coming, I took the title from a book that I read on the front end of the pandemic, about a year before the pandemic. A pastor in Canada named Kerry Newhoff wrote a book called Didn't See It Coming, and he describes seven things that everyone experiences but nobody expects. And insecurity is one of those things. None of us kind of see insecurity coming, but all of us end up there one day. And today we're going to talk about how we can overcome that as we close this series that we're in called Didn't See It Coming. If you're new to Cornerstone, if you're watching for the first time, welcome. We've been walking our way through this book in the Old Testament in the Bible called Ruth. We've been seeing how the people in that book who lived that story walked through some things they didn't see coming And yet in the middle of them, God works this incredible redemption story, and we're going to bring this to a close today. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Ruth. Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible, as I've been telling you all throughout the series. It's after Judges. It's before 1 Samuel. And we're going to be in the final section of the fourth chapter today. We'll be in some other places, but that's going to be our primary spot to camp out. And it's been so good to be in this book and learn from this book. And I had high hopes for this series, and even I've been surprised about all the things I've taken away from it. I hope you've been encouraged, too. And I want to invite you to stand as we read God's Word this morning. If you've got a digital Bible, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible if you want to follow along. Here's how this end of the passage begins. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So Naomi took the child, and she placed him on her lap and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
Now, these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered, I want to say salmon, but I don't think he's referring to the fish here. Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd speak to us today from this text. And if there are some of us in this room today who are wrestling with our understanding of who you are and who we are, we pray that your word would speak powerful truth into that cloudiness and you would bring clarity and conviction and hope. And I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, what I want to talk to you about today, what I want to teach you, is three things you need to know about everything. It's a small task today. (laughs) Small subject. What we're going to talk about today certainly comes from Ruth 4, but it speaks to something much larger than just Ruth 4. It speaks to all of us and the places that life has had us, life has us, and life will have us in the future. And here's the first thing you need to know about everything. Everything we've gained is grace. Everything you've gained in your life, everything you've accomplished, everything you've achieved, everything you currently have is grace. And this is what we're going to see is the story of Ruth. One of the things I try to do is make sure that we're on the same page when we use words, because sometimes we get in disagreements because we use words and mean different things. Generally speaking... Grace is unmerited favor. It's getting something you didn't deserve. It's when you go out to lunch and uh, you accidentally order something. And you order something like I do. I'm allergic to dairy. So I order something that has cheese on it and the person will bring it. And the first thing I see is, oh my gosh, I forgot to ask him to hold the cheese. And, I, and they kind of see the look on my face and they say, hey, something wrong. I said, yeah, I can't have cheese. And they go, oh, we'll make a new one for you. I'm like, thank you so much. That's grace. I made the mistake. I should be paying for another salad. But they gave me favor. They gave me something I didn't deserve. That's grace. But moving grace from the restaurant into our relationship with God, grace becomes so much larger. See, with God, grace is unconditional love given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. When God gives you grace, he's not obligated to. He doesn't have to. No, he chooses to. And what does he give us? He gives us unconditional love. And what are we? We're undeserving people. If you've been around Cornerstone, this was a a definition we unpacked earlier this year in a series on grace. And and as I began to study grace and this, this definition began to come together, I realized that grace was so much larger than I realized. And we've been seeing grace all throughout Ruth. If you were here week one, we saw Ruth receive grace for salvation. She grew up in Moab, this desert place where people worshiped other gods. And and on the middle of a hard conversation, road trip with her mother-in-law, she said, Naomi, your God will be my God. 
Your people will be my people. She declares her faith and and God gives her grace for salvation. Later on, when they're back in Bethlehem, she experiences grace for provision. She randomly picks a field to go pick barley in. And this, this field is owned by this generous and gracious man named Boaz, who not only allows her to pick up the scraps, the, 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 the pickers left behind, he sets aside some of the best barley for her. He provides for her. God gives her the grace for provision. And in Ruth 4, this was last Sunday, we see that her life was redeemed through this man, Boaz. And then here in the text we just read, we see that she has grace for conception. We know from earlier in the book that Ruth struggled with infertility for at least 10 years in her first marriage. And if you've ever battled infertility or secondary infertility, when you have a child but you can't have another and you want to, you know that nothing shakes you and your relationship with your spouse and your relationship with God like infertility. And Ruth 4 tells us that God allowed her, God opened up her womb and allowed her to conceive. And so all along in this story, we've been seeing God's grace towards Ruth, that everything she has, her new husband, Boaz, her child, Obed, her, her family, Naomi, provision for eating, her relationship with God, all of that is by grace. And friends, God's grace gives all of us what we could never deserve. Everything you have today is grace. You say, well, I worked really hard for the job I have. Yeah, and the fact that you have the skills and the abilities to do that job comes from God. That home that you have, not only the resources to get it, but if you've bought a home in Prescott recently, it's God's grace to get a house. The relationships that you have. You've probably messed up some other relationships. You didn't mess up this one. Or maybe you did mess it up and you still have it. That's grace. And the first thing you know about everything is that everything we've gained in life is by God's grace. That's one of the reasons why the word grace at its root is tied to the word thanksgiving. The word that we use for communion, the Lord's Supper, the original word in, in the Greek, it, it's the same word that's used for Thanksgiving, Eucharist. Eucharisto means gratitude or Thanksgiving. When we recognize God's grace, it moves us to gratitude. The second thing you need to know about everything is that everything that has been undone in us can be transformed by grace. Everything in our hearts and in our lives that's been undone, that's been broken, It can be transformed by grace, and that's Naomi's story. Before I remind you of Naomi's story, I just want to ask you a question today. Where does life have you today? If you were to describe the state of your heart, the state of your life, where are you today? Not just here in this room, not just here in Prescott, not just wherever you're watching me today, but but where does life find you? Put another way, how's your soul? Is there something undone in your soul? Often, I don't know the answer to that question well, but the people around me do. Because they experience the consequences of this. A couple weeks ago, as I started writing this message, within 24 hours, twice, I had to go to my wife and say, hey, I'm sorry. 
I think the test of a good relationship is how often you're saying sorry. How often you realize the impact you're having on the other person. And on both of those occasions, something was going on in me and I let it out on my wife. She didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't really mad at her. This thing over here that happened was really a reflection of this other thing that was happening in me. And so if you're not sure where life has you today, a better question might be, are you seeing what they're seeing? Are you seeing what's going on inside of you the way they're seeing it? Because sometimes the things that are going on inside of us, it takes like people holding a mirror up to us to see it. And we see this in this woman named Naomi. If you were here a few weeks ago, we met Naomi, and Naomi was in a dark place. Life found her in an undone and difficult season. In Ruth 1, this is what she said. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. Naomi, her given name, means sweetness. She says, no, don't call me sweetness. Call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Very bitter. It means bitterness. Life found her in a bitter place. But she wasn't done. She had other adjectives for how she was feeling. In the next verse, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Finally, she says, why do you call me Naomi? Why do you call me sweetness? Because the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi is, is not doing well. She, she was visibly and emotionally and verbally giving signs that something had been undone in her. And what had been undone? Well, she was forced from her home by famine, and in a foreign country, her husband and her two sons died. You'd probably be bitter too. You'd probably be feeling empty too. You might say, God has afflicted me if you had gone through that. And that's where we met Naomi. But I told you week one that Naomi was going to go through a profound transformation in this book. One of the things I wanted to do in this series was make sure that Naomi got her due time. Because even though Ruth's name is on the book, if this was a movie poster, you'd see Ruth's name, but you'd also see equal billing for Naomi. Because she experiences profound transformation. We just read about it in Ruth 4. What did the women say? They said, hey, you have gone from bitterness to rejoicing. You went away empty, but God has brought you back full. Naomi, God has given you a gift. Though your sons died, he's given you Ruth, who is better than seven sons. Seven in the Bible is a number that symbolizes completion. And so when, when the women around Naomi say, hey, he's given you Ruth, and she's like seven sons, it's basically like saying, hey, you got blessed, but that blessing came in a format and in a means that you didn't expect. We met Naomi when she was bitter, but as the book ends and we leave her, we find her rejoicing. And it's, it's a word to you today. It's a word to me today. That where you are today is where you are. But it may not be where you always are. And isn't that what happens when we get undone? We, we turn where we are today and we say, this is where I'm always going to be. I'm bitter today. I'm always going to be bitter. I'm hurting. I'm always going to be hurting. 
I'm isolated. I'm always going to be isolated. I'm sad. I'm always going to be sad. And the thing you need to know about everything is that everything that has been undone in you, it can be transformed by God's grace. And where you are today doesn't have to be where you are forever. The third thing you have to know about everything is that everything we feel is a barrier to God's love it can be overcome by grace. A lot of times we feel like there is a giant chasm or a giant wall or a giant obstacle between us and God's love. And if you still have that, that little sticker around or paper if you're at home, I want you to pull it out and I want you to look at this second section. And in that second section, I want you to think about this question. What's one word you feel others label you with. I said none of us like to be labeled. So what's the thing that you feel like others often use to label you? It's that thing that if people say it, you kind of just kind of cringe in like, man, I'm bigger than that. I'm more than that. There's more to me. Do you not see me? Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's a phrase. Maybe it's an event. Maybe it's a flaw. Maybe it's a weakness. Maybe it's something in your past. Here's what I've learned about labels. Labels rarely liberate. They usually limit. Part of the reason I hate being labeled is I don't want to be put in that small of a box. I'm bigger than that label. I'm more than that label. I'm larger than that stereotype. And, and rarely when someone puts a label on you, do you feel like wild and free. You often feel restrained and confined. And what we see in this passage is that we're tempted in this book to label some of these people in the moment or by their struggle. And when you read the full story, you see that Naomi is so much bigger than even the the label she takes herself. She's so much bigger than Mara. Ruth is so much bigger than, than the Moabitess widow. And throughout this book, we see that, that we shouldn't label people because if we do, we'll limit what God does. Some of you are like, man, there's not a whole lot here at the end of this book. I love you, but you're wrong. What we have at the end of this book is a genealogy. And a lot of times when you read genealogies, you're like, man, genealogies, this is really boring. Like some of you, if you, if you get through Leviticus, I talked about Leviticus last week, you get to Numbers. And Numbers is a lot of numbers. Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible. But Numbers is also a lot of lists and genealogies and people. And what we see at the end of Ruth, in Ruth 4, 18 to 20, is really a preview of another genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. When the Gospels begin, the, the stories of the life and teaching of Jesus, we get the full picture of who Jesus is from his earthly lineage going all the way back to Abraham. And in that genealogy in Matthew 1, there are five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, to us, it isn't a big deal. But in a patriarchal culture, 2,500 plus years ago, to include women in a genealogy was out of place. You wouldn't do it. You would just list like Ruth did. This man had this son, and this son had this son. 
But if you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, 1 through 16, there are five women mentioned in the genealogy, and all of them are unique. The first one is named Tamar. And her story gets told in Genesis 38, 6 through 20. Tamar is married to her husband. Her husband dies. They have not had any children yet. According to Leverett Marriage, what we discussed earlier in this series, the brother of Tamar's husband should have helped her have a child. You can read what this husband did. Let me just say he failed in his duty. There's no other sons. A son grows up who's younger to be the age to take on this duty, and the father won't let him do it. And eventually, Tamar takes matters into her own hands. Friends, this is not like salacious. This is in the Bible. She dresses up as a prostitute. She waits outside a town. She knows her father-in-law, Judah, is going to, and her father buys a night with her. Later on, she becomes pregnant, and her father-in-law is preparing to have her stoned when she gives him something that shows him that he's the father of the child. And this is the first woman in the genealogy of Jesus. And so if I was talking to Tamar about her struggle or her past or a label that someone may have put on her, someone might have said to her, or she might have said about herself, you know, my family failed me. Such matters into my own hands. Maybe that's you. Not everybody comes from a perfect family. And some of us, in navigating the family we were born into, we had to take matters into our own hands, and maybe that meant we compromised. We made a choice we weren't proud of. And if that's you, that's your story, I want to encourage you, Tamar is in the genealogy of Jesus. And God's grace says there's place for you there. The second woman in the story, her name is Rahab. This says Rehab, and maybe Rahab should have gone to Rehab, but... But her name is Rahab. And her story is told in Joshua 2, 1 through 24. And like Tamar did for a night, Rahab did for a lifetime. Her job was a prostitute. Living in the city of Jericho, and when the spies came in, the Hebrew spies, to spy out Jericho, she hid them. And as she was helping them escape, she said, Promise me that when you come and take the city, my family will be protected. And they said, Because you hid us, we will. And so the only person who survived the, the attack on Jericho when the walls fell was Rahab and her family. One thing I learned this week, because I'm still learning right along with you, is that Rahab becomes the mother of Boaz. And the grace and the redemption that Boaz offered Ruth, I wonder if he learned from his mother, Rahab. So if you're here today and you're like, Scott, I have a past. And I feel like my past keeps me from God using me. There's a place for you in this story. Because the people that God uses are people who have pasts. Then there's Ruth. We've been hanging out with her for five weeks. Her story is told in Ruth 1 through 4. And she's a foreigner. She's an outsider. She's from another place. She's an immigrant. Her skin color looked off. Her accent was off. She used to worship another god, but here she is, and she becomes 
the great-grandmother of King David, she's included in the line of Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're like, Scott, I'm an outsider. I don't fit here. I feel out of place. I feel like everybody's staring at me and everybody knows I don't belong here. Guess what? There's a place for you in the story of God and the family of God and the grace of God can redeem you. Then there's Bathsheba. And most of us already know the name Bathsheba. She's been labeled by a moment that I don't think was her fault. She was doing what she's supposed to do. In the Old Testament, there were guidelines and laws about women bathing when a certain time of the month was completed. And it's very likely she was following the law. She was doing the right thing. But the king, David, was not. He should have been at war, but he was at home. Instead of being at war, he was leering. And he used his power to call Bathsheba to his home. And either they had an adulterous relationship at minimum, I think you could call it abuse. I think you could call it assault. Because in that day, who says no to the king? Who believes your word over the king? A child emerges. David tries to bring home her husband who was committed to defending his king, even while his king was taking advantage of his wife. And this man won't go back to his wife while his brothers are out fighting. And finally, basically, David has him executed, covered over in a battle. And that's how we know Bathsheba. That child, it was stillborn, died. We know Bathsheba because she also becomes the mother later on of a man named Solomon, who is likely the author of many of the Proverbs and some of Ecclesiastes, who's in the line of Jesus. And if you say, Scott, I've been abused, I've been traumatized, I've been taken advantage of, I feel ashamed, there's place for you. And then there's the last woman, Mary. Now we love Mary, we think about our little precious moments, nativity scene, that's tucked away right now for a few months. But how many of you know someone who became pregnant as a teenager? How many of you know somebody who endured the labels and the shame of being pregnant as a teenager? And that's in the 2000s. Imagine in the zeros. Mary, though she became the mother of Jesus, became pregnant while betrothed, while engaged. And everyone in her community would have saw that and assumed that she was a woman of no character, that she'd compromised, that she'd cheated on Joseph. And you could say, if you were talking to Mary, that she was the subject of gossip and slander. And so if people have gossiped about you or slandered you or labeled you about what they thought they knew about your life, there's place for you. I'm trying to say with all these stories, I'm trying to say our big idea. Never underestimate what God's grace can do in you and can do for you. Never underestimate what God's grace can do in you and what God's grace can do for you. These five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary, they're all in the genealogy of Jesus for a reason. I've been telling you all throughout this series the names of people and the meanings of their names. They're in there for a reason. 
And you are here today for a reason, so that you could discover what God's grace can do you, do for you and can do in you. And I will tell you that there are other ways that you can live if you don't embrace God's grace. And typically what happens is you live like I have often lived. I've spent long periods of my life trying to get God to love me for my achievements. Trying to get God to, to give me his unconditional love because I earned it or I proved it or I accomplished it. I've struggled my whole life to not only understand grace but embrace grace. I'd much rather God love me for my achievements. But that's not how God works. God doesn't love you because you've achieved something. God loves you because your achievements in his eyes look a lot different than they do in your eyes. And I love what Robert Benson said. He said, I am not, ex- I am not measured by the good I do, but by the grace I accept. There is no amount of good that you could do to measure a perfect, holy, and righteous God. Trust me, I've not lived a lot of life, but I've lived enough to know that you cannot do enough good to feel secure in who you are. And the good news of God's grace from Ruth to Revelation and everywhere in between is your relationship with God is not measured by the good you do, but by the grace he's extended you and that he wants you to accept. So today I want to invite you to take some next steps. And here's the first one. I want to invite you to admit your need for grace. If you've never experienced the grace of God, then today could be the day where you admit for the first time that you need grace. But if you're like me and you grew up in the church and maybe you're an achiever and you like to kind of win and you like to be number one and you like to feel good about your accomplishments, maybe you need to admit your need for grace because you've been trying to earn what you could never earn. In Romans 5, Paul writes, but God proved his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God proved his love for you and for me, not by when we achieved well, said, man, good job, way to go, add a boy, add a girl. No, in our worst moments, Christ died for us, not because we achieved anything, but because he made us, he created us, and he loved us. And the way that we admit and we embrace his grace, later on, Paul describes, he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All you have to do to embrace God's grace is admit your need for it and put your trust in him that he actually can give it. And for some of you, that, that, that's your first step today. For others of you, it's to number two, believe what God says about you. Maybe you've been spending so much of your time listening to what other people say about you, listening to how other people label you, that that's the loudest voice in your head. Maybe it's a parent who at a young age called you dumb or stupid said you were never going to amount to anything. Maybe your mom said, you know what? You're just like your father. Maybe your dad said, you're just like your mother. 
And that wasn't a compliment. That was a label to pull you down. If you have your sticker out, I want to encourage you to take it out one more time. And in that bottom section, that third section, I want you to think about this question. What's one word that describes what God says about you? Maybe you've been spending all your time in this middle section thinking about what other people's label you as. Or maybe thinking about what you believe about yourself, but what about what God says about you? I believe that what God says about you is the truest thing about you because he made you and he knows you better than everybody else. There are no secrets with him. So what does God say about you? Let me give you just a short list of the things that God says about you. He calls you his beloved. If you're a follower of Christ, you are free. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are forgiven. You are chosen. You are accepted. Though you may not feel it, you are not alone. In Christ, you are redeemed. And you are not an old creation. You are a new creation. You have made new. And this is just scratching the surface. So before you leave today or before you turn me off today, I'd encourage you to think about putting something in that final section about what God says about you. Because you're going to walk out to a world that labels you. And you've got to make sure that the loudest voice in your life is the voice that knows you the best. And then finally, number three, your third next step might be to take your place in God's story. Like Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba and Tamar and Mary and David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so many others, there is a place for you in God's story. And one of the beautiful things about reading a genealogy like this or studying a book like this is you discover that God redeems your story by helping you see your place in his. Part of what God does when he redeems you from all the things that have happened in your past that other people have tried to label you with, is he redeems your story by showing you that like these people, there is a place for you in God's story. It's not maybe what you thought your life was going to be or how you thought your life was going to go, but there's a place for you. And today, as I'm preaching this message, I'm thinking in my moment about a day six years ago. Six years ago, next week, I had the biggest job interview of my life. I came up here to preach my very first sermon as a candidate. I'm not sure if you've ever had to do your interview in public. Interviews are nerve-wracking. Can you imagine having 500 people in your interview? That was my interview here. I didn't know any of you. Some of you were watching online. I'd never even seen you before. And I stood up here and I gave my best sermon, at least the best I could give at that time. And sitting right down here in the front row was my friend Ken. Ken and I met in 2009. We've been friends for several years. And Ken drove up to Phoenix and sat through both services. Because he wanted me to see at least one smiling face that day. And I smiled because I didn't know how many more chances Ken and I were going to have. Ken had AIDS. And he was dying. And the picture of Ken that day looks very different than the day I met Ken. 
And for years, when I would call Ken and get his voicemail, he had the same voicemail for years. I wish I could hear it today. But I remember it. Ken would tell us before he closed, he'd say, hey, remember, God's not in your story. You're in his. Ken went to be with Jesus several years ago. And I still remember his words. And I want to encourage you today. God is not in and a part of your story. He's not looking for a bit part or just a small role. He's looking for you to recognize that you are in his great story. And it doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter the labels that people have put on you. It doesn't matter the excuses that you think leave you out. There's a place for you in his story if you will embrace his grace today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that despite everything we know about ourselves, there's a place for us in your story. Despite the words that other people have put on us, the labels they've used, the places we felt condemned, limited, hemmed in, misunderstood, you know us better than anyone else. And you love us more than everyone else. And so today I pray that we would have a new and deepened sense of your grace that goes beyond what we've ever experienced before. For my brothers and sisters in Christ today, I pray that they would recognize that the truest thing about them is what you say about them, that they would hear those words, receive those words, embrace those words, and live from that label that truly does liberate them. I pray that they would not stumble where I have stumbled so often, that they wouldn't try to measure themselves with you by the good they do, but by the grace they've accepted from you. But today I also pray, Jesus, for the people in this room and who are watching from home who've never embraced your grace, who up till now have thought that there was a barrier between them and you that could not be crossed, an obstacle that could not be removed. And today they're beginning to recognize that you have made a way for them to come home to you to be forgiven, to be made new. And if that's you today, I want to invite you to take your very first step of faith by surrendering your life to Jesus. And you could do that by praying a prayer like this, Jesus, I give my life to you. This is new. I don't know what I'm doing, but I sense your presence and I believe your love. Thank you for coming to die for me while I was a sinner. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord. And so today I declare my faith in you. Come and make me new. I want a new life with you today, Jesus. I want your grace. I need it. In your name we pray, amen.